Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Tim McCormick to the Philosophy Podcast. Tim is the brand new head coach for Arizona State women's lacrosse, uh, playing days, played at UMass, was a goalkeeper, um, and uh, as an assistant coach, he moved on to Northwestern. He's got an awesome history, incredible passion for the game, and uh, congrats on the job, Tim. Really fired up to have you on the show, too. Thanks a lot, Jamie. I'm excited to, to touch base and, and hopefully, you know, explore some cool things here. Yeah, no doubt. Philosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. So are you uh, totally drinking out of the fire hose right now as a uh, head coach? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, a lot, a lot happened in a quick amount of time. It, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of times you get this job. A lot of people get this job right in the heavy recruiting season. So, yeah. you know, when you're when you're moving halfway across the country, in particular, you're you're not really able to get settled. We weren't. My family and I weren't able to get our feet settled for for about a month, and we finally did. We just did a, a road trip out a couple of days ago. Took a few days to you know, make it a fun trip and stopped in a couple of cool places along the way. And, and we're here now and, and I'm just, I'm thrilled to be out here. It's really exciting time. It's awesome, man. How sick is ASU? Unreal. Unbelievable. I mean, the, the place is just phenomenal. Palm trees everywhere you walk, beautiful campus. Um, you know, and the, and the people are, are amazing. I mean, this athletic department is so supportive of everything and, and, you know, the vision and the goal that, that I've, brought forward to them and and it's just it's it's a really cool time and, and I'm excited to get people out here see what we have to offer and and really just kind of you know show this place off a little yeah and you're in an awesome conference um, you're a new program but you're not a startup and so that brings both uh, the challenges of you know trying to bring your culture to the program but also at least you can kind of get going with some 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 sophomores and juniors um, but talk to us a little bit about how excited you are about competing in the Pac-12 uh, and what, what, even though you don't know what you have quite yet, you know, some of the, your excitement are along those lines. Definitely. So, yeah, still figuring out the, the puzzle pieces. I, I've watched a bunch of games since I got the job and even before, um, you know, just to kind of see what, what was out there. And, and in all honesty, I mean, there, there are a lot of really talented kids uh, on this roster, just from what I've seen and, and, you know, talking to my contacts in the club world and everything and just kind of doing my homework that way. There, there are some kids that could play some really, really good athletes. I'm, I'm excited to get together with, with all of these guys and, and, you know, get on the field and get after it. As far as the Pac-12 goes, I mean, you know, they get three teams in the tournament last year. So just a, a really, really tough conference. 
and you know want to make an impact right away i mean you've got to look at the league and, and the first thing i think that jumps out is the the connections to northwestern which is which is pretty cool. Um, You know, four of the six coaches were affiliated with Northwestern at some point. Um, Amazing. uh, Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable and and pretty cool for the conference as a whole. I I think some of the strides that you've seen these teams make in such a short amount of time has been unprecedented. And that's where we're trying to fill in. I mean, we're trying to come in and do the same thing and, and that's the goal. And, getting everyone to work together and compete at a high level every single day is going to be, you know, something that we stress and, and a really important piece to kind of get into there. And we're excited to do that. So you've got Arizona state, Oregon, uh, Colorado, uh, USC, Stanford and Cal six teams, all it's, it's, you know, big time football, big time athletics in, in great academics three teams from that six team conference to the NCAA tournament in 2019 is sick. And it's also the way your guys schedule works out is so cool because you get to play a home and home with everybody. Um, Absolutely. In the conference. Absolutely. Yeah. So just completely unique way of, of thinking about scheduling for sure. Um, you know, by playing each team twice, you don't see that in lacrosse much, but definitely works out with where we're at, where we're located. And, and obviously, as we've seen, it works out with, you know, the standings and all of the things that you want for the end of the year. I mean, when you get, you know, six good teams to just compete week to week, everything's your RPI is getting better. You're, you know, everything is kind of just enhanced within, within the conference. And I think that that's the reason you're seeing, you know, three teams get in and maybe in the future, even more than that. And, um, no doubt about it. I mean, you hit the nail on the head as far as just overall athletics, it's, it's an amazing conference to be in just really, really cool to be a part of it and can't wait to see where it continues to go. Yeah, no doubt. And, and it's, uh, you know, when you're a team in the West, scheduling is, is a pain in the butt until now you've got the home and home. It's like, all right, well, I got five Pac-12 games at home, so that's huge. Yep. And now I just got to go out and, you know, pay some guarantees or do whatever you got to do to bring some other big-time programs out, bring some other – there are other Western teams that need games, you know, so yep. a bunch of those California and some Colorado teams. Um, you guys have, you know, great weather. Um, yep. So for the early season, as we know, lacrosse, men's and women's, it's an outdoor winter sport. So better place to be than down in Arizona for February and March. So you should be able to really attract teams to come play you guys, which, which, you know, at at whatever level you need, whether it's to boost your RPI or to get yourself some 50, 50 ball games, whatever it is. Um, So that's awesome. You got to be fired up about the scheduling opportunities and kind of where it's at. Very, very excited about it. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is, this is a destination type place for a lot of these teams. Unfortunately this year, we kind of came into it when everyone was already uh, halfway through their schedules. Um, But looking forward, yeah, I mean, I've had so many people reach out to me, like, hey, let's get this thing done. Like, let's do great teams, really, really high-profile programs from back on the East, from Midwest, and just, you know, looking to to get a good, solid game in great weather and get come out here. So, I mean, you're spot on with that. And I think the opportunities that brings for us, you know, adding a few really – high level home games every single year because of the destination is going to be huge for us for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's turn the clock back 
for a second. You uh, grew up in Long Island. Uh, you went to UMass. Your goalkeeper. Tell us a little bit about your years at UMass uh, as a player, and then when you decided that you wanted to be a coach, and then how you actually got into women's lacrosse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. UMass was just an amazing opportunity for myself. Um, playing for Coach Greg Canella was, was a life-changing experience for me. He really was the type of person that tried to see the best in everybody and really, really put a ton of trust and faith in me my first couple of years uh, as a backup goalie. Uh, I backed up uh, Doc Schneider, who was an All-American and later on became my coach. Yep. Uh, legitimately, I'd have to say the best leader I've ever played for and continues to do that with, with the athletes over there today. So um, sitting behind him was, a, was, you know, an experience in itself. But as we all know, sometimes backing up, especially when, you know, and, and you see this all the time at this level, you've been so successful throughout your whole youth and high school career. It was in, definitely an adjustment, but not for one day did Coach Canella ever turn his back on me or not trust me or kind of write me off as like the second guy. He held me to just as a high standard as he did with the rest um, of those guys. And, and in all honesty, those guys and that leadership group in, you know, like I said, I mentioned Doc and, and another guy that comes to mind as, as far as leadership and, and toughness goes, Joey Reale. Those guys made me feel that way as well. So going on to that program, although I was a backup, not for a day did I feel like I was not contributing to the greater good of the team. And yeah. I also think that that experience helped me paint a better picture for a coach. You know, a lot of times coaches were the guy that stepped on as a freshman and played every game and contributed right away. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to relate to the, to the other 20 people on your roster who, who aren't doing that on a daily basis where I feel like I, I can, um, you know, a couple of points that, that we learned throughout there. So that's kind of just my experience as a player, obviously uh, fought it out for, for a spot my third year there and, and was fortunate enough to, to earn it and ended up playing for the next three. Uh, I, I had a red shirt in one year and then it was we're a three year starter. Correct. Yeah, so redshirt in one year, three year, three year starter, and um, you know learned a lot. So a couple of points on that. Uh, number one, and I think that you know you'll you'll remember this from your playing days. You'll remember this from your coaching and watching days. Just toughness. Um, I mean, we knew that any team that was coming onto that field with us was going to leave knowing that they played a tough game, whether win, lose, or draw. They were going to leave that field knowing, wow, those guys were on us. And um, that was just kind of the culture. And it, it almost kind of created itself. It, you know, we talked about it on a daily basis, for sure. The leaders did and, and coach preached it. And, um, you know, the assistants did as well. But at the end of the day, when we stepped onto the campus, we knew that that was kind of our identity. We were a little bit under-recruited group we had a chip on our shoulder always and we played really, really hard and, and we practiced really hard. And I think that, you know, those things, the combination of all of those things, you know, created this culture of 
just kind of toughness, never give up and um, kind of in your face mentality for, for 60 minutes. And it was a lot of fun, met a lot of great guys, talked about a couple of leaders there, played with, played with a lot of incredible players as well. Um, you know, and I mean, this list could go on and on, but just to mention a couple of guy, you know, Art Kell was an attackman that I played with um, that was a senior with me. And, and that kid was just, you know, really just a big body, strong kid, able to get to the cage attackman. Anthony Biscardi was another guy. This guy just bred toughness. He was one of those guys that, you know, smaller guy, under-recruited, lefty, had a cannon from the outside. Um, you know, earlier in my career, Jimmy Connolly was just an amazing attackman. Timmy Belize had a, had a cannon from the outside. I mean, just a lot of really good players. And then later, we had some more skilled players and a guy like Will Manny who came in and, you know, was just so dynamic, obviously still playing today and, and taught me so much about the game and, and honestly made me better goalie on a daily basis. So playing alongside of some of these guys was just, you know, really, really incredible experience. And, and in all honesty, it, it, it was, it was a tremendous piece to kind of my coaching philosophy, my style and, and who I am today for sure. So, so how did you, um, how did you get into coaching women's across? So that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, out of, out of college, uh, I knew I wanted to coach. I, I always wanted to coach. I, I, I remember I was in eighth grade coaching the fifth grade team, my brother's fifth grade team. And I was sitting down with a couple of good me young uh, mentors as a young guy. And, and I mean, I'm literally in eighth grade, so I haven't even got to high school. And I'm sitting down with my coaching mentors just saying like, you know, teach me this motion offense. I want to install it and stuff like that. So I, I, I knew I wanted to coach. I knew I wanted to be around the game. And um, so after school, that was kind of the natural progression. Just figure it out, grind it out. At the time, it was men's in my mind. I was like, okay, like this is what I, I had really never thought about doing the women's game. And um you know, I had a couple of decent opportunities. One was with the Holy Cross team and, and, you know, a couple of pretty good opportunities. And I was about a day away from accepting that opportunity. Holy Cross men's or women's? Holy Cross men's. Um, and I had, I got a call from Scott Hiller, who for me, right, this is a UMass legend. This guy's, you know, name is all over the, the posters over there and, you know, U.S. team and just, just a straight UMass legend. And in all honesty, that kind of sparked my interest. And then he, he brought it a step further and mentioned Northwestern. And at that point in my career, when I thought women's across, when I heard the, the, the sport, it just, someone said women's across my mind immediately went to Northwestern just for, from the history, the success. Yeah. Uh, so kind of those two things, Scotty being Scotty, and just being a, uh, the legend at this, my alma mater, combined with the fact that it was kind of this larger than life entity in, in, in Northwestern, I was like, you know what, called my wife, like my future wife at the time, what do you think? She said, listen, go out there, see what you think. And there were, that was it. You know, I, I was hooked. Uh, I, I told both of those guys on my interview, I said, listen, I, I don't know one rule. I'm just telling you straightforward. I could teach a goalie to stop the ball. I, I'm pretty confident I could do that, but I don't know any of the rules. We'll have to figure this out. And they were very clear with, uh, hey, that's okay. We're going to – we'll get you there together. And, um, you know, 
they did. And that fall was a big, big time learning experience coming from just like a men's brain and, and the whole shooting space. I could get into every little nuance that I had to figure out, but uh, it was an amazing experience nonetheless. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So my first year of coaching uh, what girls across was, was this year where I coached high school girls across. And uh, it's a bit, it's a, it's a little bit of a learning curve, but I think what you also find is, you know, lacrosse is lacrosse. Yep. There's a few rules differences, but leadership is leadership. Lacrosse is lacrosse. And obviously you've, you've, you really love coaching this game and, and coaching the kids. Um, you guys really had a, a great run this past year going to the final four. It was kind of a buildup over the course of the years you were there. How many years, five years, six years. Yep. So I was there for six years. Um, had a final four run on my first year, which was unreal. I mean, honestly, can't, can't even really describe how cool that was because as you said, lacrosse is lacrosse and forever I was, you know, wanted to be at that pinnacle. I watched it on TV. I recorded games as a young kid on VHS and replayed them a hundred times and, you know, envisioned it for years and years. And, and, you know, we had a good chance to do it, to replicate it as, as a player. We had a good chance. We, we fell short and I just always wanted to get there. So to, to get there, see it, it was out at United Stadium in Towson and just, I'll never forget kind of the whole weekend of events where, you know, we had the banquet thing and I, it was just a really unforgettable, um, you know, stretch, had some tremendous players on that team, learned so much that year uh, as a coach and obviously from mentors and Kelly Amanti and Scott Hiller um, worked with Danielle Spencer and just, just had an amazing year and, and experience. And, you know, I think back to like some of those players, Alyssa Leonard was just lights out. She basically in a nutshell taught me how valuable the draw was that, that, uh, that year. So I, I learned that pretty quickly in, in our game, how valuable that was. And, and a couple of good defenders we had athletic defenders Kate McDonald uh, Kerry Harrington these are kids that I had a chance to, to really work closely with Christy Turner mentor these guys Bridget Bianco in the goal and you know like I said I mean that that experience I'll never forget then you know it was uh, kind of a rebuild and I think it for a few years there we were just trying to find you know a couple of pieces to, to put together and and develop our leadership and and continue to, to, to pound the, the culture piece of everything and chipped away at that. And we had a lot of great players throughout that span too. Um, and then you kind of fast forward to, to my last year there and, and we're able to, to get into another final four. Again, another unforgettable experience, got a chance to coach some of the best players of all time. Um, you know, the, the, the first name that comes to mind is, is Selena Lasota and, you know, you've seen, you've seen, we've all seen what she could do and, and, you know, what she did to the game, in my opinion, she really kind of opened a lot of eyes to a lot of coaches and a lot of players in in her style of play and, and, and to me too. And, you know, so just coaching her was just amazing. Had a few really, really good players on that group as well. And um, just an awesome experience throughout that time. I, I had a chance to coach with some great coaches too. Um, you know, so obviously Kelly and Scott throughout just, incredible mentors taught me everything really um, that I, that I know about this game and this sport and what it takes to be successful. And, um, you know, as the assistants, I mentioned Danielle, uh, Hannah Nielsen, 
I got to share an office with Hannah and work closely with Hannah Nielsen. That was an awesome experience to get her kind of vibe on things and, and see, you know, her perspective. And, and as of late, Hannah Murphy, who was just awesome as well, younger, but just really clued into the game, had a tremendous expertise at the draw and picked her brain on a daily basis as well. So incredible six years for sure. Um, give us, paint us a picture of Kelly Montehiller. I mean, she's a Hall of Fame caliber coach. She's won seven national championships. She's, she's a, you know, good person, nice, intense, um, smart, inquisitive. Um, those are the things that come to mind for me. Um, how, how do you sort of characterize her and what did you take from, from her, your experiences working for her? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to put it all, all of it into words from, you know, the positivity that she brings, um, the vision that she brings as far as, you know, experiences. And I'll get into that a little bit um, to, to the fact that she, as the best coach of all time, continues to learn yeah. on a daily basis. I mean, it, it was unreal. Unreal. Um, I'll start with the positivity. And this was something that, you know, early on in my career, I was this young kid and I was kind of like, oh man, we did this and we messed this up and we did this. And she always had the positives in it. It was always like, okay, but we did this, this, and this. And I remember kind of being like, all right, there's, there is two ways to look at this. You're, you're right. We did do those things well. And always you know, scrapping or clawing even sometimes to see the positives in, in every situation. That was just for me, a, a, a huge, huge, you know, exploration to kind of like put myself in that, you know, I had to, then I started to do it, you know, like, okay, there is a positive here. What is it? You know, and, and just painting a vision, right. I, I, I consider that positivity as well, where, you know, I asked some of the young, the, sorry, the older alumni, and you know, it's a, it's a fairly young program. So I had touches with all of these people that she's ever coached and just, you know, what was it guys? Like, what was the thing? And she, you know, their thing was positivity and belief. The fact that she believed in them and just had this kind of like sense of, we're going to do this thing on a daily basis in three Plus years, four years later, that team that was her first class wins a championship. Unreal. You're four. She wins a championship in year four of a year four. Yeah. So you take the kids that you instilled this belief and positivity in, and you you see where it takes you, and and that's where it took them. And that was the common theme amongst every single alumni. I've come across ninety percent of them, I would say. And that's the common theme. I asked them all the same thing. Like, what was it? You know, what was it about this experience? And that, that's it. It's those two things. Um, now, even further, she just tends to push this game forward, in my personal opinion. And that's what I saw. You know, we played games at Wrigley Field. I mean, just there's nobody doing stuff like that um, in women's lacrosse right now. And, and that just is an incredible experience. We did a training trip out in Malibu, California with the team. And, you know, these are things that are really put a little private concert on for you guys. He did. He did. He did. Yeah. So what, what, what is kind of the thought there? What did I learn there as a future coach? 
experiences, right? These kids are going to walk away with just top-notch, amazing life experiences. And that was kind of a priority. Play on TV, right? Make pushes to do these bigger, cooler, better things. And, and that taught me so much, you know, it really did where like, that was undervalued for me. I was just kind of just there and I was like, let's go play. I'll go play in a parking lot, you know, whatever, which, which has its upside. And, you know, I definitely still would, (laughs) but to create those types of experiences for kids and let them take those and run with those, you, you, you really, I mean, you really can't beat that. And then the last piece, just learning. I mean, to be as successful as that, but continue to want to learn, pick the brains of people who, you know, are like yourself and, you know, whether it's a sports scientist or whoever, anybody, right? anybody that's going to bring an ounce of value. That was amazing. And, and that, again, I mean, to, as a, as a coach and now like in my role, that was probably my biggest takeaway. Always learn, always, there's always room to get better. Where are you going to get your edge and continue to, to look for it? So those are my kind of things, you know, as a mentor cool. that I felt like she brought from me. And now you're taking that on to your, to your own head job. And, and we were talking about this. I mean, it's, you know, you're a, a new parent and a new head coach. Uh, there's nothing that can actually prepare you for those things. The books, you can read all the books you want, but you know, you just got to start experiencing it. Uh, the book stops with you, but, but tell us a little bit about your vision on um, how you want to build your culture at ASU. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, here at Arizona state, it, it, I, I want kids, you know, I want kids to love this game. Honestly, uh, I want their two hours of practice to be their best two hours of the day. If we could replicate that, if we could kind of instill that, right? And, and, and with that, you're going to be working hard. You're going to be, you know, put into tough scenarios. But regardless, when you, you know, that two-hour block, that's your best two hours, we're going to maximize every possibly, every possible thing that we could po- do as a, as a group. Um, you know, with that, I want uh, to instill a sense of toughness. Um, in there, that's kind of like going to bring my UMass background. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to do things the right way and we are going to, you know, push people into the, to the workforce ready, you know, to get after it. Um, you know, ultimately, right. While competing, uh, for PAC 12 championships, uh, and, and, and further, you know, and, and that's kind of the goal here is just, you know, create people who are fully ready to be immersed into this world and, and, you know, have a, have an amazing experience while doing it and, you know, compete at the highest level on a daily basis, you know, and, and for me, that starts as I began with here with practice, you know, and, and if we make that two hour stretch, our best two hours of the day, every day, you know, the, the sky's the limit. You know, and, and, you know, that's kind of the goal there. If identify leaders early. That's kind of where I'm at right now is just, you know, figuring out who's going to, who's going to be our leaders. I can't, we all know the importance of leaders and how, you know, far 
that will help and take this this group and that's kind of the process we're in right now and then from there just results will follow the phil acrosophy podcast is brought to you in part by the jm3 coaches training program if you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw like so many of the guests on the show you are going to love the content in this program Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. How, how do you want to play? What, what's going to be like the style of play that you uh, focus on um, on both sides of the ball? We'll, be, we'll look at the offensive side of the ball. We're going to be an up-tempo group. We're going to uh, push it uh, you know, at any chance we get. Uh, I think, you know, attacking early and transition in kind of unsettled situations is going to be something you're going to see a lot out of us. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about scramble, GBO. Uh, yeah. Those will be kind of like automatics, right? Ball goes down, we're, we're moving it, and we're trying to get up and, and you know, look for a good quality shot. Um, on the settled side of that, we'll, we'll play a box-styled um, offense, you know, with a lot of two-man game, um, you know, a lot of uh, cut the middle and cycle on the backside, uh, getting the guys at X involved as well, um, you know, and I think just, you know, having that two-man philosophy, uh, you know, with our strong hands, being, being okay with playing with our strong hands, and I think that that might be a little bit against the green, but that's something that, you know, I, I see a ton of value in, and when you watch some of the box the best box players, you see how efficient it really could be. Uh, I, I think everyone needs an outlet pass with their offhand for sure. Um, you know, you might need to finish it down low in a, in a lefty point spot or a lefty uh, fast break spot, you know, occasionally too. But, you know, as far as two-man goes and all that stuff, you know, if you keep it in your strong hand and just work for high percentage shots, get, get uh, over the top, get underneath. But, get to the middle with your strong hand upfield and get good quality shots. Yeah. Um, as far as the D goes, I want to, I want to be, um, you know, discipline is probably the, the, the number one word that comes to mind for me. Um, just, you know, be extremely disciplined, play really, really good angles and be ready to pounce on every loose ball. Um, you know, I, I think, playing a, a good team style defense uh, with a lot of communication. I'm, I'm one of the type of coaches that's going to go be okay with switching back and forth from man to man to zone. Um, but the, the key, the key components are let's be really, really disciplined in what we do. And what I mean by that is just simple things. You know, if someone throws a pump fake, don't leave your feet, right? If someone goes from a double to a triple threat position, there's no reason to rise up. Uh, sit low, understand that if you're on the ball, your job is to cover the ball. If you're off the ball, your job is to cover the cutters first and then play good, solid help defense as well. Um, you know, in this game, there's only one area you could score from. So let's, let's make sure that we dominate the middle of the field. And when that ball goes down, like I said, let's, let's compete for it and, and come up with it. So you guys, um, back to your offensive uh, topic, you guys did a lot of two-man game at Northwestern and you kind of, you know, I feel like um, over the years, it, it, the same the same was true in men's lacrosse. There was a time when people were like, don't bring another defender to the ball. Um, and I, I feel like that has been a, 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 
In men's lacrosse, that has gone by the wayside. I think in women's lacrosse, it's going by the wayside. People are realizing that it's actually more difficult to, yep. to play a two-man situation, and you're still dodging. Right. Uh, now you have two people that have to communicate. And not only that, you know, now you've only got five people on the other side of the field. Uh, so if they slide, you know, there's four guarding five instead of five guarding six. So there are advantages to these two- and three-man games. Can you just elaborate a little bit on your thought process and how you're going to try to take it to another level? Totally. Um, so the, the, simple, the simple thought on just offense in general is create an advantage, right? So w people are just so much more athletic nowadays and, you know, bigger, faster, stronger. And I'm talking about from a defensive side. So, you know, where in the past you could create an advantage by simply doing a split, left to right split dodge down the alley, getting a step on someone, drawing a slide and kicking it. You could probably still do that occasionally as well. And, and some teams make a living off of it. But to create – another way to create an advantage, the way that we will, is, as you said, bring two to the ball. So now, immediately, you're creating communication. Communication creates an advantage for the offense because we've all been there. You got you to gotta be perfect on the DN. You have to – if it's a switch, you have to switch – appropriately if you're going to get through you got to make a decision whether you're going under whether you're going under over um so you know you are now creating an advantage without having to get a 20 yard run at someone shoot a bad angle shot or you know roll back and and jam the ball opposite um so right away just by you know standing still next to one of your players you created an advantage now it's about kind of the, the next steps um you got action on the backside so keep the backside occupied if anyone tries to ball watch from that area of the field let's make sure we get a good hard back door on them and if we could hit that player great if not what do they have to do they're going to obviously have to cover that in giving us a better angle to either get over the top or underneath of our picker and get to those high percentage areas. So I think in a nutshell, when you think about it, it's just all about creating an advantage for your, for your team and how to do it as simply as possible. The simplest way to do it is to make the defense make a bad read. And, and by bringing two to the ball, the more times you bring two to the ball, the more bad reads that the defense has the ability to make. So, you know, I don't think that there's a limit to how many times you can run it. Um, you know, you could run it 10 times in a possession, as, as we've seen, before you get the look that you want. But the, the more constant you continue to bring to, to there and the more they have to talk and the more movements they have to make perfectly, the better chance you have to, to get to the cage and get yourself an available shot. My uh, the late, great Dave Huntley um, had a bunch of stats done. Uh, for, uh, I don't know, something like 10,000 or 13,000 shots in the MLL over the course of two years, I think 2015 and 2016. And um, what they came up with was the scoring percentages were higher on two-man situations than isolation for those exact reasons. Um, likewise, he always talked about, you know, you referenced this alley dodges versus coming to the middle. You know, you referenced, you know, you don't mind if players are pretty, pretty one-handed um, because there's, there's stats that prove from those same 13,000 shots 
that literally in every quadrant that they broke it into, they broke, they broke their, you know, in, in the MLL, they broke it into 27 quadrants or something. In every quadrant except dead center, the scoring percentage was higher when the stick was to the middle. Uh, so as a right-hander dodging from the wing to the middle, either underneath your man or over the top of your man, gives you a better angle. Um, and this is really what you're sort of talking about of, of why you believe that you can have like these Canadian type of box style players. Exactly why. Um, you know, to kind of expand on that, my defensive philosophy, you know, to go, to go a little deeper into that is, and I talked about discipline and, and angles, right? So it's the flip. It's the complete opposite. Let's give the alley dodge. Let's encourage the alley dodges. Strong hand, weak hand, whatever. Get the hand to the outside. Encourage it. Play good solid D, sit low, get on the hip, give up those shots from the eight-meter arms, and you're in a great spot, right, to play good, successful defense. In my – I call those plus ones. That's what I call those. And I kind of have like a, a scale of, you know, what's a good shot to give up, what's a bad shot to give up. You get a plus one for a good one. You get a, a minus one for a bad one. And I think, you know, one of my philosophies is that, you know, I, I, I'm a type of coach that I'll give up 100 shots on D as long as they're the ones we want because – those shots down the alley, those are turnovers in my book. You get your goalies to play good angles. You get your goalies to hang in there and learn how to see, track the alley shots and make big saves on those, which are typically your lowest percentage shot, like we just talked about. Um, and I, I want to give up those types of shots. So even if that, those shots come frequently and constantly, that's what we're looking for. So just to kind of like give you the, the flip of this whole philosophy, that's what my mind's telling me on defense. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, definitely getting, getting to the middle on the offensive side of the ball, uh, getting your stick upfield, you know, and increasing your percentages. And, you know, these are, these are all pieces that I think are make this kind of two man philosophy successful. And I saw a stat, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, it was essentially just giving you the, the value of a Canadian in the men's side. Yeah. And have you seen that one? Yeah, this guy, Michael Mobison, I actually did a webinar with him um, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, sum it up from 10 years of statistical analysis on Canadians shooting percentages versus U.S. players shooting percentages. Yeah. And this would be Canadian slash native, so box players. Right. Um, the Canadians shot at 34%. The Americans shot at 28%. And this is consistent over the course of nine years within, like, you know, fractions. You know, one year it might be 34.1 and 28.2, right. but it's basically right. the same. And um, honestly, probably the main reason is because they shoot with their sticks to the middle. That's, that's, that, that's They don't take bad shots. That's it. And I believe, I want to say, I got that name from you maybe a year or so ago. And I want to say I saw an article that he might have done yeah. that literally was this. Sounds yeah. like he replicated it on your, yeah. on your thing. Oh, there you go. Yes, correct. And in all honesty, for anyone that's listening, that was, that was it. That, I mean, that, to me, that in a nutshell, I was like, wow, there it is right there. I mean, because they do play that strong-handed model, right? Now, listen, do they shoot on smaller cages? Yes. Do they shoot on bigger goalies? Yes. So those, I think those things have a bit of, of it, uh, you know, 
influence to this as well, for sure. And, but that's what everyone sees. That's kind of like, oh, well, they shoot on, you know, but yeah, okay, so they do that. But also look at, look at the shots they are getting compared to the ones that most of the Americans are getting. That is going to do it more so. And we've replicated with Americans and seen that it, gets, it goes up. So yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, no doubt. That was incredible eye-opening for me seeing that for sure. I think the shooting percentages in Northwestern went way up. I want to say about eight to 10, yeah. if I remember correctly. And that's- uh, Some kids, it honestly, was like 30% to 50%. Yeah, yeah, it might have been. Yeah. It might have been. I mean, and that, that's monster numbers, monster. Yeah. Um, you know, when people talk about the, the bigger, bigger goalies and smaller nets, and, and so, of course, you would need to be more accurate or more deceptive. But, but honestly, what it really has to do with is that you never take an alley shot. It'll never go. Correct. That, that that's in, in the end, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the fact that it's, you know, that whole game, it's easier to, it's, you know, you got to get to the middle. You got to have your stick to the middle. Um, you got to be able to shoot when you don't see the net. Yep. You have to be able to, you know, sh- kind of shoot around your, around your defender. Um, and uh, it's easier to get there without the ball than it is with the ball. And these are all the things that, you know, are almost the exact opposite of how, you know, U.S. kids grow up playing boys and girls lacrosse, where it's just a pure clear out of the way, dodge, run down the alley, and shoot, you know, on a huge net with a tiny little goalie that's, you know. The size 100%. Hundred yeah. percent, and and you know, like we both have said, and me and you say this all the time. We're like, hey, nothing again. It works, you know, great. Like it works for some people yeah. and everything. And I, I, awesome. You know, everyone's got their own principles, philosophies, but you know, any edge, I'm going to take any edge. And when I saw these numbers and these things kind of you know come about and watch, you know, what could happen by creating a mini advantage by making communication happen, getting your stick up the field getting a good high quality percentage shot from the middle of the field. It was no brainer. It was actually a no brainer. It was very hard to defend too. So I, you know, I did the D over there and played against a ton of two men over the last few years as a, as a coach of the D and it was, it was hard. I mean, you, you know, that area of the field, right. You think like, I call it like elbow extended area of the field to initiate from that's, that's a tough, spot to to guard from you know uh you have options to take it underneath you have options to take it over the top so you're giving yourself just a a lot of field to work with then you add the communication piece and then you add the high percentage shot that you're that you're ultimately going to get and it's it's hard so i think all those things come together you know that's what i'm going to look to to kind of install and and push forward for sure Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy on player development. I mean, um, obviously you can, not every kid you recruit is going to come in having played a ton of two-man game. Do you think you can teach it? And how are you going to teach all the skills involved? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And that's kind of like, right, where my mind's been because, right, I'm inheriting kids now, right? We haven't had a chance to kind of recruit for for this type of system. Um, First things first, anyone in my, this is just an honest, truthful thought of mine. You could get anybody to play this type of system. It's very simple. It's, um, you know, it's something if done properly with the steps that I'm about to talk about, you could get a really, you know, up and down athletic type team to kind of dial this in as well. So that, that's, a, I think a big thought is that some people are like, well, I don't got the personnel. Like you could get, you could get yourself there, no doubt. Um, and I think 
the simplest way to put it is you got to start small. It's kind of like a part whole method where just dissect it. Um, you know, one thing that I, I we kind of started with, and I've done this now uh, in a couple of you know camp events where I you know do an eight hour day and just kind of install this thing throughout the day and do a build up, and we start with legitimately just one individual player catching a ball and getting really comfortable in what I call a square up position or some called double threat, which is just a low kind of low cradle square stance to your defender. Think basketball, um, think point guard at the top of the key, kind of just dribbling back and forth, assessing their defender. So I think, you know, you got to start there and, and that being comfortable in that area. A lot of, I'll talk on the girl side more right now. A lot of uh, girls want to catch the ball and go, go, go. They kind of have this like thought process of like, I got to move. Um, we're going to try to strip that down initially. We're going to try to just slow them down, get comfortable in that double thread or that square up position and, you know, good stick protection and then work our drifts and drags, which are just little shuffles, subtle back pedals, um, you know, and, and just, comfort in that area i tell them you should almost get to a point when you're doing it on your own that you feel a little uncomfortable there so that's the first thing um then you layer it and i i've done it where i go to a two on oh so now you got you know just two players kind of on air no d and you you run through your little system um in which case you could do a pass down pick down what whatever kind of concept you're starting with that's what you're going to implement there and just trying to give them a couple of different reads, teach them, you know, what a slip is when you use a slip, um, you know, teach them more to like pick an area, good pick angles, right? That's huge. The angle of your pick, where is the, where's the Dodger going to be going? Are you, are you giving them an angle to fade them? Are you giving them an angle to, to actually get to the middle? So like just dialing in those angles of like your shoulders and how you're going to set that pick. Um, picking an area as opposed to a girl, a lot of, you know, a lot of girls want to go set a pick on a player. They go right to the hip and just kind of stand there. So just kind of being more loose with, all right, just get to this spot. Let this player, as long as your angle is appropriate, let, let the offensive player utilize you as opposed to you going to them. So those are things you're looking for in the two on all. And then you add a, another player, you go two on one now. You, so you're going to guard the ball carrier. Let the let the ball carry get comfortable squaring her up, you know, a little back pedal drift drag. Um, let the pick develop and then you go under or you go over. So now you're starting to make your decisions. You know, when do you go over? Okay, when she starts to play me towards my bottom hip, when do you go over when she plays me upfield. So now you're throwing in a decision. And I think decisions is gonna be a common word now throughout the rest because the more decisions they make, right, the less you you stop this type of drill the better they're going to get these, these, these kids are smart, you know, they, and they have good feeling. A lot of them are athletic and there are, there are some kind of principles that you want to stop and teach, you know, and go over pretty closely, but um, you know, let them make decisions. Once you kind of, you know, give them a simple two cents of it all, let them have to get out and make decisions. Um, once you're finished with the two on ones, you could throw in two on two. So now you got the, the, the picker being guarded, you got the on-ball girl being guarded, and you know, you're starting to include some communication now with the D. Now this is when you start to say like, okay, I could slip because I'm the picker, my girl played me a little bit, she sloughed off me, um, you know, looking for the switch, I'm gonna slip out early. Um, you know, so you're starting to, you know, even greater 
incorporate some of those decisions. Um, and then in all honesty, I won't go through the whole progression, but it's just in a nutshell, you're going up one and then you're matching it. Then you're going up one and then you're matching it. So you'd go for, from a, a two on two to a three on two. Then you can incorporate a three on three, four on three. And, and at that point you're starting to utilize your sides. You got your, you know, you're, you're incorporating, you got your right-handed side, you got your left-handed side and you're starting to, you know, drill those, concepts, philosophies that we just described with the higher percentage, why do we do this and, and how to get there um, until you kind of structure it and you have your base, your base offense. Um, I said it before, but we were able to implement something like this in an eight hour section of a, of a clinic and with kids who have never played with each other before. And I watched them go from, you know, literally a one person square up to playing seven man, box style offense and um we did it in seven and a half hours the last half hours the last half hour they played and they were very very successful and they understood it so it's it's a simple model and it's a good build up and that's kind of the progression obviously you know within that as you ask just skills you're doing a lot of individual in college we have the ability to do a lot of individuals you know grab people on the side when when we think they need help bring them extra watch film with them. You know, these are things that we're going to be doing with these guys. But, you know, as far as youth and high school go, take your two hours and just drill it, start small part, and then get to your hole and, and um, let them play, let them make decisions. Don't, don't continue to blow the whistle every two minutes. Yeah. Do you think that um, two man game is going to be uh, on the rise in division one women's lacrosse? Yeah. So Two years ago, we started playing this and at Northwest when I was coaching at Northwestern. And I want to say we were the I would I will just go out on a limb and say we were the only team playing this type of style. Kind of like, you know, not that no one ever set a pick, but basically you guys were that's all you were doing. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um so last year. I would say we played against three teams and then watched maybe an additional one or two that were, that were starting to get there. And not, not that that was their entire thing, but they, you could see some kind of, you know, consistency on like, huh, that, that looks a little familiar. Right. And, and um, it's starting to go in that direction. And then, yeah, I mean, I think, so that's what four teams there. I, I think in the next, you know, five years, you know, I don't want to say if you're not playing it, you're going to be behind, but almost, you know, almost not. Yeah. Now, a lot of these teams are really, really good athletic up and down and they could beat you on the first step. So, you know, maybe, but, but nonetheless, you just, you make it a little bit easier on yourself. And I, I would go out on a limb and say that, you know, in the next five years, you're going to see the majority of teams playing this type of yeah. style for sure. I've seen it trickle down to the club. I've yeah. seen it trickle down to the clubs, you know, and, and that's, you know, probably I would assume a product of watching it on TV, seeing stuff that they were doing and, you know, replicating it. Oh, wow. Like, you know, we could do this. And I know, you know, Syracuse has kind of their flip uh, system and it, which is more same kind of philosophy of getting to the middle a bit and um, weave type scenarios. And, you know, a lot of clubs using that stuff. So yeah, when, when you start to see it trickle down to that level, those, those girls now just, habit right so by the time they get to you it's almost natural to keep it yeah no doubt i mean and back to the to those stats you know if in in, in men's lacrosse and, the, and those mll stats in every behind wing and out top and every single uh quadrant 
uh, two-man game had a higher percentage than, uh, um, than uh, isolation. And interestingly, the highest percentage was short-to-short short in men's lacrosse that had a whopping 35% short-to-short short from the wings. Think about the Dallas Rattlers and right. these Canadian guys. In, in women's lacrosse, it's always short-to-short. Short. Yeah. Some people would say, well, why? It should be easier short-to-short short because, you know, if it's long-to-short, you, you might want to try to keep a matchup. Short-to-short, short, you know, you can just switch it. But that's when the slips end up killing you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's cool stuff, yeah. man. That is. Uh, let's talk uh, – let's change gears for a second here to, um, to recruiting. Um, you know, where are you guys at and what's your overall philosophy on, on recruiting? And then tell us about your uh, upcoming prospectives. Totally. So um, right now we are, we're kind of in the middle of evaluating everybody, um, you know, obviously trying to add a couple of 2020s, um, looking down the pipe at some 21s come, you know, September 1st, excited to, to, you know, get a first full class in and, and start that whole process. As far as what we're looking for, you know, I, I, I want, I, I really like to recruit the families, um, you know, so I try to recruit really good kids, good families, um, you know, obviously now establishing kind of style of play, looking for people who could fit this model a bit, um, you know, some skilled players, you obviously can't have one type of person, right? So you're yeah. going to have to kind of supplement that, get some, some athletes in there as well. So, you know, I, I'm not going to pigeonhole ourselves into one type of player, but people that could definitely you could see starting to um you know have the ability to adapt to this type of style um and then you know i i think the biggest the biggest piece to the whole thing is just getting people who love the sport right getting people who love this game who have an extreme passion for the sport and you know want to watch it you know in their free time and want to study it and play pickup like we talk about a lot and do yep. these things that are like the in between okay every every kid is showing up on saturday and going to field five and playing their game right but there's a few of those kids that are watching the college games going out and you know uh, taping these games and replaying them and trying to study and you know simple question is just like who do you look up to right like who are some of the players give me some of the players that, that you like to look up to if the kid has three answers to that question you know that they're watching this stuff you know that they're watching the pro games they're following college and um the kids that kind of are a little bit stumped by something like that you know maybe they're maybe they're not doing that as much you know so you know, just, just getting people who want to be around the game. I think that creates what I said before, which is creating the best two hours of the day. When you get a group of kids who love this, like I just mentioned, they're going to enjoy every practice. They're going to, you know, give it their best effort. They're going to buy into everything that you're trying to teach them. They're going to want to come in and do extra film and do the extra work to, to be great. So Right now, that's kind of what we're looking for. That's the the stuff that we're looking to piece together, and and we're excited to do that. I think we got a lot of a lot of good kids, um, you know, and and um, you know, I, I I like to be diverse as well. I think that having a, a diverse roster is is really really huge. Um, you know, you get different experiences. I, I, you know, let these kids be individuals. And how many times could you you know be a kid from you know 
New York, let's say, and have a kid next in the locker next to you from Kansas, right? Here, you could do that right now. We have a couple of kids from out there and um, that's pretty cool. You know, yeah. you, could be, you could be next to a kid from Washington State, you know, and head up there, you know, and, and in, my, in, in the past kids that I've coached, you, you could be from a kid from British Columbia. So, you know, and that, that diversity kind of just brings a sense of like individual to, you know, I want everyone to be themselves. I don't want everyone to be one type of person. And, and I think that that helps kind of push the culture along. And, and that's something I'm looking to continue to replicate. I, I think that's pretty cool about our locker room right now. Um, as far as prospect days goes, where I'm still dialing in a date, looking, looking to be late October and, um, you know, probably do some satellite stuff. Uh, you know, I, I got a date in late September for something uh, like that. But, uh, you know, that stuff will all be kind of coming in the next couple of weeks as, as we continue to get our stuff organized over here. And, um, you know, excited for all that. Like I said, just, just to get people out here, get kids out here, parents out here, club coaches, clubs, and, and see this place is really, really high on my list because it, it really is just such a, such a special, unique place and setting that I, I, I just, I'm, I'm so excited to show it off and, and have people come out and see what we're all about, get to know our staff as, as coaches and people and myself and, and continue to develop the relationships and, and hopefully, you know, create something really, really awesome. Is it the kind of place that all you got to do is get somebody there and they're going to fall in love with it? You, you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, it, it, it is that, that cliche stands true here. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that you hear it a lot, but this is true. This wow. is actually, yeah, you'll step out here. You'll, you know, we're 11 minutes from the airport. I mean, so quick drive, you're on campus and, you know, just walking around, seeing what we have to offer. We're getting a new stadium built, um, in particular for the lacrosse team right now. So that's just amazing. Uh, so exciting and, and sure. um, you know, getting the locker room kind of revamped and doing some really fun, cool things. So uh, it, it is that it is that type of place for sure. I have a question about recruiting. It relates to recruiting defensemen, defenders. A, a lot of people think that uh, coaches only look at middies and they're only going to recruit middies and they'll make them into defenders or make them into attackers. Um, is there truth to that? Or do you, are you looking for kids that are athletes and can cover and, and, and you're going to be able to identify them, you know, whether they play D or mid? I'll speak for myself on that front. And what I will say is that you cannot measure the value of recruiting true defenders. Um, one of the reasons why, and I, I, I don't know, if, I'm still figuring out if this is like the number one reason why, but it, it, it's very high up there is because they take such ownership in that position and pride in yeah. doing it and covering people. And hey, this is what I do. I lock you down, right? For, for 60. This is kind of how I play. When the loose ball comes down, I get it. I get it up the field and we're out. And, and just... To, it's hard to replicate that sense of pride with a former midi who's used to going up and down and scoring goals and being in the paper and doing all this stuff. So, I, you know, 
again, I don't know if that's the number one reason, probably also because they just get a ton of reps too, right? Yeah. I mean, they're constantly, they're, they're not splitting the reps half and half. They're, they're playing D. So in practice, in their one-on-one -on -one sessions, they're playing defense, defense, defense. And I think, you know, there's so much to be said for that. Um, you know, and that's just, that's just myself. I don't know about others. Um, and I will, I will echo the same for attack, you know, just, it's the same thing. You know, if you get a skilled attackman, I said it before, you can't recruit one person, right? If you had a bunch of really up and down fast midfielders, you, what are you going to, what's your product, you know, realistically? I mean, yeah, you'll be good. You'll be sufficient, but you're not going to be able to hit the kid that has the hands in tight, you know, to a really small area or a great pick setter um, who's able to read it and slip and, you know, set a good solid angle pick. Like these things matter. And I think, you know, getting your good attackers and hands players and, you know, deceptive skill guys are, that's enormous. And same thing on the other end, right? Your D that just takes the ownership and pride and covering and coming up with ground balls and getting up the field that, I don't think you could put value to those things. I agree, man. And, you know, the mentality of being able to be a, a defender, you know, like yes. you said, I mean, that's just a mentality and not everyone has it. I agree. Um, and a uh, you could have it, uh, but they also might just be wishing they were playing offense. And, and that's like the worst when you need them to be a lockdown defender. <laughs> All you want to do is score goals. You got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and answer these questions and share your uh, past and your, and your vision for the future. Um, I wish you the best of luck, Tim. Um, you've got a great thing going and I uh, can't wait to watch you build it. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to it all. And hopefully you, you could get out here sometime soon. I will, man. We'll be all in right. touch. Bye, bye. The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.